All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. This is the Teacher Talking Time podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast. To those of you who are new, each episode of our podcast is devoted to bringing the most recent, most innovative, and most insightful research applications into teacher education, language teaching, and language education. And if you are also new to our Learn Your English community, I have to tell you more about our new Teacher Accelerator program which is our online program for teachers all around the world who want to eliminate lesson planning, reach and help more students, teach less, earn more money without, of course, sacrificing work-life balance. Our programs help teachers reflect and develop in the most important skills they need to succeed in the information age. And it's just like your teaching isn't for everyone. Our program isn't for everyone. It's for someone. The program has four pillars of successful design. We have a community, we have live sessions, we have self-paced learning, and more importantly, we have lots, lots of feedback. Does this sound like you? Are you a teacher who wants to implement dogme and task-based learning in your teaching? Do you want to eliminate lesson planning? Do you want to help more students, but also work less? Do you want to transition from selling your time, teaching one-to-one, to actually focusing on outcomes and selling results? Do you want to be a business owner and not an employee? And more importantly, do you want to build and scale your teaching business? If this sounds like you, then don't forget to click on the show notes. There's a link there, and you can actually book a free meeting with us to talk more about your situation and see whether or not we can help you with any of these things. And now, let's get on with the show. In terms of trying to move things forward, and what one of the frustrating things is the, the very slow speed of any change in education in general, and in language education in particular. Good morning, afternoon, or maybe even night, and welcome to our podcast called Moments Mediating Matters. My name is Emma Rins. I'm Michelle. And I'm Laura. In today's episode, we will talk about the CFR and their influence on mediation and plurilingualism in secondary education. We're absolutely thrilled about this episode since we invited some very interesting guests. First of all, we'll talk to Professor Piet van Avermaet from the Linguistics Department at Ghent University, and we'll further discuss the concept of mediation with two co-authors of the Common European Framework of Reference, Dr. Brian North and Professor Enrico Picardo. Grab a cup of coffee or tea and listen and learn. Welcome, Professor van Avermaet. Would you maybe like to start off with a short introduction of yourself? My name is uh, Piet van Avermaet. I'm uh, based at Ghent University at the Linguistics Department, and I'm also head of a research center, which is called the Center for Diversity and Learning, where we do uh, research uh, focusing on uh, the, the mechanisms of social inequality in education from a diversity lens. 
So our research is more than, than, than just language, although language and multilingualism is, is very central in, in our work. But we cover more topics, uh, but it's always, uh, on the one hand, diversity related. And on the other hand, we are very much interested to deconstruct the, the tenacious problems of uh, social inequality in education. Wow, that sounds really interesting. Also, because we really like to delve deeper into the concept of plurilingualism with regards to mediation. The CEFR defines mediation as a concept of the user-learner acting as a social agent while using plurilingual skills. And furthermore, plurilingualism is defined as the dynamic and developing linguistic repertoire of an individual user slash learner. In what way would you say that you can see this interconnection between mediation and plurilingualism within the classroom? Well, um, in theory, there are a lot of opportunities where mediation and plurilingualism could be uh, interconnected in the classroom. Whether that's the case in practice is, however, doubtful. When I say theoretically, it is, it, it is possible. First of all, I think it is important to stress that concept of agency. Um, uh, and I think there is a, a, a major challenge, both in adult education, but also uh, in secondary uh, education. Um, I think um, the students often do not have a lot of agency. Um, um, sometimes they are given voice, uh, but but they they often uh, they are not in a position um, to invite the teacher to allow them to explore their plurilingual repertoires in in the process of of learning whatever whatever subject. Now, having said that, um, I think. Um, in order to be able to materialize that interconnectedness between mediation and plurilingualism, it'll be important to see how um, teachers can um, create spaces for pupils um, to give them opportunities uh, to engage in uh, these uh, mediation uh, dynamics. As I said, currently we hardly see any practices. Um, it's only anecdotal. Um, now and then, um, we see small examples uh, of um, uh, teachers allowing the pupils to use their multilingual repertoire in, in the process of, of, uh, of mediation, um, of, as part of the mediation. But um, often the teachers, and I'm here mainly talking about the Dutch-speaking part of Belgium, often teachers uh, immediately correct themselves by saying, okay, this, this was exceptional. Actually, uh, the, the school policy is that you're not allowed to use your plurilingual repertoire. So, and, and this is a kind of tension which you often see. What I observe is that the resistance uh, to materialize it amongst the teachers is sometimes it's ideologically driven, um, it, in, but in most cases is, is it, it is driven by the idea that giving agency to pupils to allow their plurilingual repertoires, that there is a, a kind of fear of losing control of what's going on in the classroom. When they start to mediate and they are using all kinds of different languages, the teacher who often only masters the language of instruction uh, has that fear, okay, what are they talking about? What is happening? I'm losing control. And this is something uh, that teachers often find very hard to, to, to handle. The second point is what we, what we often see is um, that um, there, there are low, that's what we know from research, that there are low levels of self-efficacy amongst teachers. 
So they have no feelings of competency. They, they, they say, okay, yeah, of course, these plurilingual repertoires, they are an asset. I, I see the potential, um, but um, I have no idea how, can ex how I can exploit them. So, and then of course, the question is whether um, the descriptors in the CFR um, will help teachers to overcome um, these, well, resistance, that hesitance, and, and whether that will help uh, to overcome their low feelings of self efficacy Okay, thank you. Um, you've already talked a bit about this, um, but how would you say that the ability of using multiple languages in language settings, um, would it be, is it treated differently in secondary and education and primary education in Belgium? Well, um, on the basis of the most of our research we've done so far is in primary education. So I have the most experience in primary education. We do currently do some research in secondary education. Um, what is interesting to see is that um, we, we have the impression, we have the impression that there is a bit more openness in, uh, amongst teachers in primary schools. I'm not saying that their competencies are higher at the start, but there is a bit more openness um, than in secondary education. Uh, why that is, I mean, there are several hy possible hypotheses. One hypothesis is that um, uh, while learning is already very central in what education, education is about and teaching is about in, in primary, it is even more the case, at least in the perception of teachers in secondary education. So the idea amongst teachers is, yeah, but um, we must assure that all these children go through the curriculum, acquire everything which is needed. Um, so the balance between what I call care and learning uh, is the balance is better in primary than it is in secondary. There is more focus on learning and a bit less on care, on, on the pupil's well-being, on their self-confidence, uh, while that's uh, amongst teachers a bit more in, in, in primary. But having said that, with regard to ability, both in primary and in secondary, there, is, um, there are still a lot of hurdles that need to be taken in order to, give, to increase that self-efficacy, um, that competency, that ability of teachers to really exploit it, in a sustainable way. Um, the reason why it is potentially a bit easier in primary than in secondary is that um, teachers in primary, they have their school children all day long. So they have a bit more space to experience, to do some experiments, to do some tryouts. Uh, while a, a secondary school teacher, he often has only 50 minutes. So, and there is that curriculum, there is that uh, the goals that he or she has set for that 50 minutes. So there is um, often, uh, they feel less space to, to, uh, to do some, some experiment. I was wondering, because you just refer to uh, the openness of secondary school teachers, that they're a little bit less open to like, experiment because they have little time, relatively little time compared to primary school teachers. Uh, would you say then that there would be more openness if the time was there? And then maybe as a follow-up question, do you think that it's realistic to work towards such a goal to give secondary teachers more time to explore these concepts and maybe work towards the dynamic that they have in primary schools? 
I don't think that time um, and, and, and trying to extend their time is the solution because, as I said, we, to some extent, we also see the resistance uh, in, in primary education. Um, what, what is important is that we try to change teachers also in, in, in secondary schools, teachers' dispositions with regard to um, their, their beliefs and, and, and that, we try, that we try to strengthen their knowledge. What I do think is important, and that's what we neglected over the years, is we have the descriptors in the CFR, we have all kinds of tools, we have materials, we have theories, etc. But what we don't have, at, at least not enough, are powerful examples of good practice um, in video materials. When we do professionalization trajectories, we, we work more and more on the basis of video coaching, uh, videography, um, video stimulated recall, uh, where we show um, examples to teachers also in, in, in secondary, how simple the idea is to exploit the plurilingual repertoires um, in, in, uh, in, and, and how simple it can be to, um, to, to materialize and to address to the, the, the CFR descriptors. So for me, it's much more in um, a good way of and finding uh, the right way to professionalize teachers than just to give them more, more time. Okay. We've also shortly discussed the, the concept of the learner being a social agent. And the Buckers all wrote an article about um, the concept of multilingualism in secondary education. Uh, to what extent would you say that implementing the concept of the learner being a social agent uh, is influenced because of a student's proficiency in a target language? Ooh. If I understand your question correctly, um, then the condition is that, or, or that we assume that indeed the learner is more than before uh, somebody who has agency. Is that right? Yes, that's very much so. Well, as I said in the beginning, I, I doubt whether um, we're already in such a situation that the students or, are already given uh, a lot of agency. Look. Um, Again, I can't speak for the Netherlands, but when I look at the Dutch-speaking part of Belgium, what I do see is that uh, students are giving agency with regard to all kinds of issues that are in the periphery of education. Organizing things on school, there they are given agency. But once, once it comes to the didactics, when it, once it comes to what is key to the central part of what education and teaching is about, then I do not see that many examples of where students are given agency. Do you then think that the CEFR offers enough uh, of a framework to increase the role of mediation and plurilingualism to make sure that uh, students get enough equal chances? Whether, whether the CEFR can change that? Is yeah. that your question? Yes. Well, I, I, I think that, that Brian and, and, and Rika will not be happy with my answer, but my answer is no. And could you maybe explain why? Yes, of course, because my answer is no, but it is also nuanced. I think it is, it, 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 is, it is key and it is absolutely important. But we have to be aware of the fact that it's not because there are some descriptors that that impacts teacher be, teachers' behavior. As I said, in order to change teachers' practices and teachers' behavior, we need these descriptors. As, and it provides leverage, but it has to go hand in hand with working on teachers' dispositions. The CFR descriptors won't change the dispositions of teachers, 
they won't change their behavior. They won't change their situation-specific skills. What we do know, in order to change teachers' dispositions, in order to change their situations, to strengthen their situation-specific skills, and in order to change their behavior, they need to be professionalized in a sustainable, in an intensive, and in an, in, in an interactive and blended way. And there, the CFR, the scriptus, can be a powerful tool for those who are involved in these training trajectories. But the CFR, the scriptus, as such, there the answer is no. But when we wouldn't have the CFR, the scriptus, then I think it would be it would have been extremely important to invent them, to come up with them, because, as I said, it is a powerful leverage for trainers, for, uh, but be it in-service or pre-service training. Right, yeah, so there would be more potential, but we still need sure. to work on that. Okay. Absolutely. And would you say that today's assessment policies in secondary education take into account the diversity within the classroom? Well, um, they don't, in general. There are interesting small examples of good practice but these are often the result of an individual teacher um, who is aware of the fact mm, it is important that in my assessment that i critically reflect on my assessment practices what i do think is and, and that's what we are now exploring more in depth is that in classroom-based assessment where you have all kinds all forms of assessment there is much more potential to exploit the plurilingual repertoires and also to make in the assessments to make the link with the new descriptors in, uh, in the CFR. We would like to welcome our second guest of the podcast, who is Brian North. Uh, we, of course, already know a lot about you, about uh, the work you've co-authored, which is the CEFR. Um, but for our listeners, would you maybe like to introduce yourself? Uh, okay, so I started as a, as a language teacher teaching English in a private language school in London in the late, well, mid-1970s, and then became a, um, a project coordinator for an organization called Eurocenters uh, and moved to Switzerland. And then I moved back to England and was the director of studies of a school for five years. And then by 1990, I was back in Switzerland and I got involved in with the Council of Europe project and the CFR. Um, I because uh, I was uh, kind of very interested in scales of language proficiency. In fact, I was probably the world's leading expert on that subject. And uh, it was a Swiss, the Swiss had, a, had a, an international intergovernmental symposium to propose the CFR. And uh, I, I was the coordinator of it, um, or the office boy, the office boy. And, and then I got to do the last presentation, which was about what uh, such a European scale of levels might look like. And everybody liked this. And uh, the Dutch delegate had actually decided this had to be in the center of the framework rather than just being in the portfolio. So I worked for the same organization, actually, for my working life for 37 years, which is very unusual. But I switched from being a teacher to a project coordinator to a researcher to a manager uh, and back to being a researcher. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is so interesting. Such a wide range of interests and domains. Um, mediation was introduced in the companion volume, especially in the move away from the four skills to the four modes of communication. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the companion volume in comparison to the CEFR 2001 with regards to the concept of mediation? Sure. 
I mean, the, the concept of mediation is first mentioned in a, in a document I produced in 94, uh, which was, and, it, and at that time, it was saying that it was always a combination of the, of others, of the other uh, activities. But it was a reflection of discussion of, a, of the group that became the authoring group of the CFR. We'd already started the research project in Switzerland. I had proposed these, the categories of reception, production, interaction, and processing at the symposium uh, that recommended the CFR. And we set up the Swiss research project in order to produce uh, descriptors for those categories. And mediation came up later, where the fourth category got changed from processing to mediation. I'm sure it was Daniel Koch's idea. But it was never properly developed. And because we were, we were working with simultaneous translation, although all three of us, which was John Trim, Daniel Cost, and me, could understand and speak English and French, we got into quite a lot of discussion with the interpreters about this wonderful new concept of uh, mediation. And in retrospect, this um, had an excessive influence on the way in which particularly mediation strategies were presented in the CFR in 2001. The, the way that it's actually presented in the CFR 2001 is that there are two aspects to it. On the one hand, this is actually a quote where it says, you know, in mediating activities, the language user is not concerned to express his or her own meanings, but simply to act as an intermediary between interlocutors who are unable to understand each other directly, normally, but not exclusively, speakers of different languages. So there you have the idea of acting as an intermediary acting as a kind of informal interpreter. It is a, a fairly everyday activity to have to do that. And then the second thing is that elsewhere in the CFR, it states that mediation language activities, that's to say processing or reprocessing an existing text, occupy an important place in the normal linguistic functioning of our societies. So there are those two aspects that are, that are highlighted. That immediately after the CFR was published, there was a lot of criticism about the lack of concern for cultural mediation. The word intercultural is not even mentioned. So there was quite a lot of criticism there. And also, the concept of mediation has become mainstream in education. The, the socio-constructivist theories of learning, socio-cultural theories of learning, uh, following Vygotsky, are kind of what pretty much everybody agrees with nowadays. And in these theories, mediation is at the center of all learning. Um, and in particular, it's the way in which you, you, you construct meaning. Uh, in, in learning, you have to the learner has to construct meaning, otherwise you don't remember it. Otherwise it's meaningless and you, you just don't remember it. So the category that is new is actually mediating concepts. And new in the sense of new to foreign language teaching, but it's not new. I mean, it's already there in the CFR model. It appeared in 2001 as cooperating, as an interaction strategy. And at one stage during this project, we had these, these uh, four, what turned out to be four, four scales of descriptors. We even had that under the, the heading inter interaction strategies at one point. But because it is such a central aspect of mediation, we decided in the end to put it under mediation. So that's the part that is, is uh, new in the sense of it's new in relation to what was in the CFR in 2001, but it, it, it relates to the way in which mediation is, is considered to be fundamental to learning in education as a whole, and reflects also the increasing 
the increasing uh, frequency with which group work is used. And one of the advantages of these descriptors is that it's a way of telling students what they should be doing in group work. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I am going to ask uh, quite a long question, so bear mm -hmm. with me. In the companion volume, you already stipulated the need for consequence alignments between curriculum teaching and assessment. Um, just to have a clear definition, the International Bureau of Education defines curriculum alignments as a process aimed at ensuring coherence and consistency between the intended outcomes as specified in the formal curriculum and teaching methods, assessment tasks, and learning activities in the classroom. Um, how would you say that this broad framework could be implemented in secondary education with such a wide uh, range of audience? Right. Well, first of all, I would completely agree with the definition. And uh, uh, the CFR is one of the very first documents which put forward such an approach uh, yeah. at an official level. And uh, in terms of how this can be implemented in secondary education, uh, well, it, it's really, one can think of it in two, uh, two different levels in the sense of places. You know, it's at a, an institutional level and at a class level. At the institutional level, you have the question of the type of school and then that particular school. And there will be some curriculum aims. And one of the advantages of, the, of the, uh, a document like the CFR is to help people who are creating these kinds of, of aims for different school years in a particular type of school to formulate um, such curriculum aims a little bit more concretely. And, if, and, and then, of course, the people who design tests for those levels, for that, for that school year in that type of school, they should be looking at these can-do aims in order to decide what sort of things it is that they should be assessing. And the same goes for the people who write course books for that type of school. And then the same goes for the, the teacher who's teaching. At this kind of macro level, it's actually quite easy to see in which the way in which uh, uh, a document like the CFR can help to inspire some coherence in, in a school system as a whole. I mean, in your particular country, at some stage or other, a choice was made to put the Curriculum Institute at one end of the country and the Assessment Institute at the other end of the country, so they would never talk to each other. Yeah. So in your particular case, this is perhaps more of a challenge than in, than in other countries, uh, where it's often the same institute that does both things. Then um, at, a, at, a, at a more micro level, or you know, the level of we're talking about the teacher and their class, uh, well, this is really about the central role that teacher assessment, given some good criteria like the CFR descriptors, to guide the process. Teacher assessment of coursework and of performances uh, can and should be a significant element in an, in an assessment system. So if you have some good descriptors, as the, uh, which the teacher has, has chosen as the aims for this term, or for this module of the next five lessons, or, or, or I mean, then those descriptors can form as the, the aims. You can communicate them to the students, and um, they can also be used for the teacher assessment of, the, of what comes out of it and the potential of transparency for the students, particularly if you, they may need simplifying a bit or they may, they may need to be adapted a little bit to the particular context, but you can involve the teachers in peer and um, self-assessment to some extent as well. 
Although, to be honest, uh, most experience, to my knowledge, that works well at a university level. You know, how young, I mean, how you, whether or not you could do that with like 12 year olds, I'm not so sure. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I think it nicely relates to the, the following question because um, we've seen your recent interview at the Hallett Language Channel. Um, right. uh, where you mentioned that the CEFR is in fact not neutral but uh, should be con considered comprehensive because the action-oriented approach is promoted and it focuses on the idea of tasks to improve the quality of learning, uh, the quality of teaching, I'm sorry. Um, what would you say that the current issues of secondary educational teaching are at this point in time? Uh, to be honest, the link in the middle of that question, it's really two separate points. You know, on the one hand, I was talking about the fact the CFR actually does promote a methodology. It's, it actually says, even in the CFR 2001, it does at one point say that it is not neutral, that uh, being trying to include everything so that everybody can find the way they teach included in this document it does not, should not be confused with neutrality. Just because we choose to describe it doesn't necessarily mean we would recommend it. But it all, it's up to the user to decide what methodology is appropriate in their particular educational context. But speaking generally, um, an approach oriented towards action, uh, you know, an, experiment, an experiential approach where students experience learning by doing um, through doing things and collaborating with each other, you know, tends to be more successful because uh, you are more likely to remember stuff if it is connected with some meaningful, meaningful experience. Um, if it's something which you just learn by heart because there's an exam on Friday and then you've forgotten it two weeks later, that sort of argument. Um, in terms of trying to move things forward, and what, one of the frustrating things is the, the very slow speed of any change in education in general and in language education in particular. I, I don't really know why, but it, it seems to be very difficult to, to move the mass of what it happens in secondary school language teaching forwards. I mean, there are, good, you know, there are certain teachers who move things forwards uh, towards using more tasks, et cetera. But, um, it's partly a question of, I mean, how long are the lessons you have? Um, how many do you have a week? If it's only three lessons a week, and the, you know, one is on Monday, one's on Wednesday, one's on Friday, uh, it's much more difficult to, to try and get this kind of action-oriented approach moving, um, particularly if you consider that there may be disciplinary um, you know, issues of relational mediation, you know, sort of organizing the interaction which takes up half the time i don't know so this can be a problem how can we actually improve the quality of teaching um, this type of approach has an effect on learner motivation in that the kids like it they get more motivated they're getting more engaged it's more inclusive the people who are less bright or uh, people who have some difficulty or other or attention disorder or whatever they're more likely to be able to get involved in something which is in which they are creating something than just sitting there and listening to the teacher explaining something or whatever, or a more, a more conventional language lesson following a course book. Mm -hmm. But, you know, following a course book, the brutal fact of the matter is that it's far easier to just follow a course book than it is to plan your own work. 
and uh, do it in a way that involves these kind of task projects. People have lives outside the classroom. It's a question of time. Um, it, the, you, one has to make compromises. As a, as, a, as a practicing teacher, you have to make compromises. You can't um, teach the whole time as if you were doing a PhD. There are great, there's a great potential in applying this kind of approach in secondary education. Um, but the constraints in relation to it are the amount of time in the, in, the, in the school schedule that is given for languages, and the fact that um, at the beginning, at any rate, at the beginning, it requires more planning from the teacher. I mean, as you get used to doing it, uh, it's less of a problem. Do you think it's uh, an attainable goal to realize the change, taking into account the previously mentioned limitations, but also the, the interconnectedness between the policymaking, the individual teachers themselves and curriculum alignment? Yes, I think so. Yes. I mean, uh, you look at some countries like in Sweden, for example, although they, they don't, they're not very fond of the CFR, um, but they, if you look at the way they do their education generally, or also in Finland, they do tend to go in for a lot of experiential teaching. And, and that's basically what we're talking about, making language learning more of an experiential subject and less of a content subject of just passively learning or, or being supposed to learn inert knowledge. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite interesting to see how this will further develop, because I think one of the issues that we talked about during the course as well is that in the Netherlands, half of your final grade is made up by a comprehensive reading task as a final exam. So most oh. of uh, the higher classes are centered around reading. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess the only hope in that situation is to use these reading assignments as an input to collaborative work in some way. That can be turned into an interesting thing by including text from the internet, from different sources, etc., and uh, having it become input to a collaborative task of some kind where you could create, where you have to synthesize all of this information and produce some kind of product. Uh, talking about the Netherlands and our secondary education. Um, so in the Netherlands, uh, secondary education teachers uh, mostly tend to overtly criticize students and lower their grade. Um, would you say that the can-do statements could contribute to a focus on what students can do, so um, that it's focused more on proficiency instead of deficiency? Yes. First of all, this is not a, a Dutch phenomenon. I mean, what you've just described <laughs> is, is something which is uh, fairly universal to, to different extents in different countries. But the, yes, the can-do philosophy is precisely to focus on proficiency rather than deficiency. Um, and it operates in different ways. One is the focus on, on practical, real-world outcomes rather than just learning bits of the the uh, the language so seeing language as a communicative phenomenon not as a as a as a linguistic object and it leads to considering different criteria in your evaluation because as soon as you say that language is about communication then most important is perhaps comprehensibility can people understand you um, can you are you capable of saying what you mean uh, this is all far more important whether you remember to use the, the, the present perfect instead of past simple, because that is not actually going to stop anybody understanding you. Counting mistakes is, uh, is one of these examples of hiding behind arithmetic as a way of avoiding responsibility. 
and it's and it, and because it's it makes people feel comfortable because they can pretend that it's objective uh it's very difficult to get it to go away but it's a ridiculous system that would be an interesting question i think um is it possible to use the cefr and the descriptor skills uh for an overall grading system or is it very hard to apply similar grades in different countries I mean, people do uh, use the CFR to create grading systems in different countries. And um, uh, I mean, there are scales for different aspects of pragmatic you know, ability, which can be used as, a, as an inspiration for creating criteria. Uh, but, but at its most basic, um, you should be evaluating the range of language a student is using, as well as the accuracy with which they can control it. Range and control are the two variables in linguistic competence. Uh, and so, in the end, it comes down to the educational culture. It's a choice. People make it make a choice. I'm not saying that that people should not be corrected. That you should not correct things. What I'm what I'm saying is that there are other factors that are more important. I mean, we see moves towards European unity are going backwards at the moment, rather than forwards uh, in general. Um, so I don't think there's going to be any pan-European you know, system. And in fact, that would be a big mistake because any progress happens at a local level and then other people hear about it and it spreads around that way. So if you had a pan-European scheme really put into practice, it would in some way um, act as a break on creativity. It's much better to have a relatively harmless common reference point like the CFR which provides a lot of interesting and inspiring ideas, but is not actually fixed and fertig. It's not actually a turnkey system you can pick up and apply. Okay, that, that's a really interesting perspective. Mm -hmm. And kind of relating to our, our final question, which is a little bit different to what we've talked about before, um, but for example, we saw that researchers such as Glenn Fulcher and Bart Deigers criticized the companion volume's descriptor skills for not being designed based on empirical evidence. What would your response be to this? I mean, uh, Glenn Fulcher said this about the original descriptors. Um, and uh, I mean, Bert Guides just said in his recent article, oh, it's like the first time around. It's the same methodology. Of course, it is based upon empirical evidence. Uh, in fact, it's ridiculous. It's, it's quite simply ridiculous to say that it is not based on empirical evidence. When people say that, their in interpretation of empirical is very narrow. What they actually mean is that it's not based upon what's called second language acquisition research, which it is not based upon taking a recording of a classroom, transcribing it, describing all the different things that are going on in some way, and then from that deducing description. Um, that's not what you do when you're creating a curriculum. And, and the CFR is that kind of document. It's a language policy document, like a curriculum or a syllabus. The, I mean, uh, the second language acquisition community themselves recognize that. I mean, first of all, about the empirical side, it just in terms of the companion volume, there were, there were like uh, about 1,500 people that were involved in the, in, in the process of developing the, the, the descriptors. Um, during the validation, there were three phases of validation, which happened throughout 2015. And in that, over a thousand people took part in all three of those validation activities. 
on the same set of descriptors. So those descriptors went through a validation process with, I mean, there were about 100 and, 189 institutions from, I can't remember, at one point it was 45 countries, but, but then it went up after that. So there's a massive amount of empirical evidence behind the, 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 these descriptors. In fact, the CFR descriptors were the very first descriptions of language competence to be based on any kind of empirical evidence. So um, I, would, I would simply disagree with that statement and say that these are very, very well-researched descriptors. And certainly nobody has come up with a better way of producing curriculum objectives. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we are very glad you want to participate. And for our listeners, could you maybe introduce yourself? My name is Enrica Picardo. I'm a professor at um, the University of Toronto and in particular in the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto. Um, I have been collaborating with the Council of Europe for a, a number of years now, since 2008, uh, starting first with the uh, European Centre for Modern Languages in Graz with some projects I, I coordinated and then uh, um, since 2013 with uh, Strasbourg and I'm one of the co-authors of the new uh, companion volume. So the companion volume moved away from the four skills to the four modes of communication. Uh, could you maybe elaborate on why this decision was made? It is a pillar of the CFR to have overcome the idea of the four skills. Uh, research had really proved that it is a kind of um, uh, artificial division, this in the four skills, because people don't separate. There are very few opportunities in which you really focus on one of the four skills. In fact, very soon there was this idea of integrating the skills. So it was visibly a, a straight jacket. It, it looks as something um, easy to tackle, to deal with, but in reality, it creates artificial divisions where in real life, uh, you, don't, you don't separate them. And the main uh, um, visibility of this fact that you can't uh, subdivide things is in the role of interaction. So since the first, uh, first CFR, the CFR 2001, there was a clear idea that it, there are four modes of communication, and it's also written in the CFR. But if you look at the, um, the descriptive scheme of the CFR uh, back in 2001, you see that the, uh, the language proficiency is organized around these four modes of communication, uh, reception, production, interaction, and mediation. The thing is that in that at that time, mediation was just announced and it was not uh, developed at all. And interaction was developed only for oral interaction, also because at that time, mm, written interaction, online interaction was not yet uh, developed was not yet used I mean in society and that made the written interaction difficult to be um, to be transformed or to be used as a basis for um, for descriptors but the innovative power of this division 
was visibly clear from the fact that interaction was immediately perceived as something different from just producing reception and production, just listening and speaking. Uh, interaction is not just listening plus speaking, but it's something on its own because you co-construct a discourse while you're listening to somebody and you are reacting, you are replying, and then you're asking again and your discourse um, moves on. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and the following question also is about the, the social context of the companion volume. Because uh, on page 36, we found a quote saying that the emphasis on the mediator as an intermediary between interlocutors underlines the social vision of the CFR. Could you maybe elaborate on this view? The very idea of being a mediator implies uh, being socially embedded. I mean, most mediation happens in a social context. You mediate with others, you mediate for others. You mediate, for example, when there are difficulties in communication, then you try and rephrase, you repeat, you explain, you find synonyms, you change the rhythm or the intonation or other um, you have other forms of even using gestures, for example, at lower levels. So in a sense, mediation is almost uh, uh, always, or let's say very often, uh, automatically linked to the fact that you are working with or for other people. You are increasingly aware that the language is a process and it's something that we do together. It's something that we con constantly do and we do. And that's why mediation happens at all levels and all the time. You mediate linguistic aspects, you mediate uh, cultural aspects because sometimes the message linguistically is clear but culturally is not. So you need uh, a phase of mediation. Uh, you mediate in different forms. Huh? You mediate a text, you mediate communication, etc. So different ways, different forms, and different goals for mediation uh, to make uh, the message clear, to understand, and honestly, which is part of the idea of the Council of Europe, to live better together, like to respect uh, human rights, uh, to, to be more aware of um, the different implications, cultural implications. Um, here we are, mediation, there's kind of triangle. Huh? It's, it's both a personal and individual process and a social process at the same time. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's a kind of Variable. Sometimes the social dimension is more pronounced, and sometimes is more of, a, of an individual um, proce procedure. Let's mm. say. Yeah, exactly. So it shows how dynamic language actually is. Yeah. This really um, can kind of be connected with our next question about uh, students also being informed not only by the concept of mediation itself, but also when thinking about the CEFR uh, as a whole. Um, because, for example, in the companion volume, it is mentioned that the learner is a social agent, also due to the action-oriented approach that the companion volume takes. 
However, uh, for example, in our, our experience, we also talked about this during class. We only discovered the, the concept of the CEFR during our master's degree. Um, so we were kind of talking about that, about how, how can we ensure that learners in secondary school are aware of the CEFR and are able to take into account their own uh, autonomy in their learning process by also using the descriptors without it becoming really a teacher-driven obligation? Yeah. Well, in a sense, I'm, I am surprised and I'm not surprised that you <laughs> didn't come in contact with the CFR. The, the descriptors should be a way to accompany a process. For the teachers, the main focus should be use the descriptors to create learning goals, learning objectives, explicitly make them clear, make them real-life oriented, something that you can see then the students being able to do so that later on, when you have to assess, there is a coherence because if you have a clear learning goals, it's easier to have coherent and clear assessment as well. But for, this, for the students, it's also the idea of seeing clearly what is expected from them. Like, what can I reasonably do at this level? You know, we still have, unfortunately, certain curricula where the content is, he can use the simple past. I mean, okay, fine, but this is not being <laughs> able to, you know, it's mm -hmm. knowing a notion, knowing something, and then that doesn't mean that it will translate automatically into being able to narrate events in the past appropriately. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there is more than just knowing the simple past yes. to be able to narrate properly in the right register, yes. et cetera, et cetera, in the, with the right pragmatics, uh, et cetera. Yeah, I think that that was also mostly our experience during secondary education, at least in my experience. Yeah, so yeah me too. Yeah, yeah, that really uh, the, the different tenses in English were kind of educated based on a linear uh, instruction. Yeah, instead of, of being able to use multiple tenses at the same time or really uh, thinking about real life based activities that we could do yeah. during class. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mostly mm. fill in the blanks kind yeah. of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 And I think that the can do statements provide students with uh, a positive affirmation of the things they have accomplished rather than focusing on their deficiency. Exactly. That's really a core, core point, yeah. a core aim of the CFR to switch mm -hmm. from the deficiency perspective to the proficiency. Uh, sometimes I use a metaphor of, uh, you know, when you do some hiking and you you still see the mountain that the top of the mountains looks very <laughs> far away but as soon as you you've done half an hour of walk and you look down you you see the valley and you say hey i did already quite a lot mm -hmm. but if if you keep focusing on the tip of the iceberg you will be discouraged because yeah, you will yeah. think oh my god i will never get there mm -hmm. um so it's really this other perspective uh, look i've done already that yeah. just to go you used an important word now one of you two uh commenting in a linear way yeah we we were taught in a linear way well that's precisely the core 
um, problem. This idea of um, separating things and teaching them one by one, as if these things then magically were able to recompose and the students be at ease in a real-life situation later. No, the student is at ease in a real-life situation if you put them in a real-life situation where there will be different tenses at the same time, as you say, mm-hmm. not just one at a time, because not, it's not the way we talk in yeah. real life. It's yeah. not the, t- the way we write in le- no. real life. So this idea of separating and making things very neat is very detrimental. Would you say that one of the mediation categories mentioned in the CEFR could be considered more difficult to implement in secondary education than the other? For me, mediating concepts would be the most difficult, uh, although like the, let's say the newest part on which we could and we should uh, concentrate our attention because the rest we can do. I mean, teachers can do very well already mediating a text. The the descriptors are, are a way to help them Remind, to remind them of the different things that they usually more instinctively already do in their pedagogy. Mediating communication, they do, and it's enlarged. It's more informed by studies in communication theories, you know, in, in comparison to 20 years ago. Now we have a more of a sense that there's a lot going on that makes communication successful or unsuccessful. And uh, mediating concepts is really a bit of the newer part uh, in the companion volume that goes beyond the two little uh, quotes or little passages. Well, mediating concepts, of course, we do every day in life, but now we can become more aware that there is this, this layer of mediation. So... That could be seen as the most challenging for the moment. Then I hope that in some time it will become also more visible and and probably less challenging. Due to the increasing role of plurilingualism in today's society, we further investigated the concept of mediation within the CEFR and its application in secondary classroom. We hope that this podcast challenges you and your colleagues to keep this conversation going and inspires you to include interactive aspects during your language classes that provide students with agency within their learning process. We hope to see you next time. Hey everyone, this is Andrew from Learn Your English. Thanks for listening to this episode of Teacher Talking Time. We work hard to produce a show that's theoretical, practical, and hopefully interesting. But, you know, not everything fits into a podcast format. And we've been working hard behind the scenes on something that we're excited about. And we hope you are too. And we're happy to share it with you right now. But first, let me ask you a few questions. Number one, are you a teacher with your own business? Number two, are you looking to grow that business? And number three, are you interested in doing that quickly and overcoming common pitfalls? If so, we have a new free 120-hour training that might be for you. You know, we've worked with hundreds of teachers over the years and have seen them stumble on common obstacles when it comes to business. These obstacles cause delays and stagnate growth to what would otherwise be a successful operation. 
And now we're happy to say that we've developed an email course to help you overcome these challenges so you can see growth in your business right away. This is a step-by-step email training to help you overcome the five obstacles that we've seen prevent most teachers from building their business successfully, whether you teach one-to-one or groups or don't have your own business yet. In this course, we look at things like business mindset, dogma ELT and materials light teaching, attracting the right kind of client, crafting your offer, and an essential business model every teacher should use. With this, we've helped hundreds of teachers to overcome these, and now you can do it as well. To begin, just head over to our website, learnyourenglish.net slash obstacles. Once enrolled, you'll get an email from us every day for five days with strategies, tasks, and actionables to use in your business immediately. Plus, at the end, there's a little treat from the three of us. So once again, head over to learnyourenglish.net slash obstacles and get started with this free 120-hour course and see growth in your business in just five days. The link to that is also in the show notes. You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.